St. John's Gospel, chapter 11 and uh, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. Uh, First of all, before we get into uh, today's story and the themes and the things I want to share with you this evening, a a little postscript from last night. Now, apologies for those of you who weren't there last night. Just bear with me. Uh, There's a little P.S., to last night's sermon, because I came across this um, from a, I think he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Those of you who know English church history better than me can correct me afterwards. But he was, he was definitely a bishop and, and, and a great scholar, a, 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 a man called, with a great, he was called Cosmo, that's a great name, isn't it? Cosmo Gordon Lang. This is what he said. At Cain, last night, for those of you who weren't here, last night we were thinking about Jesus changing the water into an awful lot of wine. Uh, and, and Cosmo Gordon Lang wrote this, At Cana, the wine did not simply come. The water became it. And this is the bit that really struck me. This is the divine method. This is the divine method. When Christ came, he did not come in a new order of being. He came in flesh as a man. It was this real and actual human nature that he made divine. And we are called to follow the divine method. I won't read you the whole thing, but he finishes by saying, it is not too much to say that the main business of the Christian life is to go throughout the world, throughout your daily lives, turning water into wine. That's the divine method, that that God takes what is and he transforms it. Anyway, that's a PS and a summary of last night. Now for tonight. What a story. But we're not going to begin with that story. Let's begin somewhere else. Uh, with a question, and this is audience participation time, Uh, and please only answer the question if you are very confident, okay? (laughs) Only answer the question if you are very confident. Now, of course, the clergy know the answer to the question, okay? Of course they do. They are great scholars, (laughs) women of profound learning. So they're just going to have to hold their, bite their tongue, sit on their hands, They're not allowed to join in. But for everybody else, here's the question. What were the first words that the risen Christ spoke on the first Easter day? What were the first words that the risen Christ spoke on the first Easter day? Does anybody want to... Does anybody want to have a go at this one? Michael offers peace be with you. Michael, it's an excellent guess, but it's wrong. <laughs> Anybody? Oh, we've got somebody here. Um, it's Richard, isn't it? Richard has suggested that his first words were Mary. 
Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful guess. But it's wrong. <laughs> I, th I think a few other people have kind of taken their hands off the buzzers at that point. <laughs> because that's what they were going to say. Um, somebody else, somebody else, somebody, we've got a lady here. We'll come to you in a moment. No, no. Do you not recognize me? Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, so, oh, we'll go, go to this lady here. Do not be afraid. Well, I think that's probably, as I'll come on to say in a minute, that's probably the best guess so far. But it's wrong. <laughs> yeah? I, no, no. We'll, we'll take a few more. Who, oh, do you know you are so close, but you're wrong. <laughs> That's the, that is the closest so far, but you're wrong. Um, anybody? Who, who, who do you seek? Oh, no, really, it's, the, it's, it's pretty much the same one. So it's really close. It's oh, the, uh, the check is in the post. We have a biblical scholar in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh row. I can't remember your name. Betsy, Betsy you are absolutely right. <laughs> now, Betsy, you've got to be honest with us now. Have you got your phone? Are, are you, have you got a smartphone under the pew? Uh, were you looking through the Bible? Betsy. That, uh, and if Katie didn't, well, well, some of you didn't even hear what the answer is, so just hold, we'll come to that, we'll ho hold that thought, Betsy, because I'm going to give with one hand and take with the other. You're absolutely right, but the true biblical scholar would have responded, Bishop, it depends which gospel you are reading. <laughs> um, because, for instance, in Mark's gospel, the of course, the Marilyn and Whitney, they, they knew all this. Um, uh, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is not recorded as saying anything. So the answer is, there is no silence. silence. So, so those of you who knew nothing were kind of right, yeah. Um, <laughs> who said, do not be afraid? So, so that person was kind of really warm, because that is the first thing he says in Matthew's gospel. Um, so you kind of, you know, you kind of get half a point. Um, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, that's the, we'll come, we may come back to St. Luke's Gospel if there's time, but if you think about the story chronologically, um, then probably St. John's Gospel has the earliest account. So you'll remember in St. John, if you don't remember it, read, this is your homework, read the account in St. John's Gospel when you get home. But in St. John's Gospel, it says, very early in the morning, remember what we said about last night, all the important things happen in the dark? very early in the morning, while it was still dark, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb. Now, just let's pause there for a moment, little footnote to the sermon, all the important things happen in the dark. Jesus is born in the night. The birth, the incarnation, happens in the night. Uh, when Jesus dies upon the cross, it says, and there was darkness over the land. And now the resurrection itself. When Mary Magdalene... And why does Mary Magdalene go to the tomb? She goes to the tomb to anoint a corpse. That's why she's going. Jesus is dead. 
And she couldn't do what she needed to do the day before because it was, in St. John's chronology, the Sabbath day. So now the Sabbath is over. She gets up early while it is still dark. She goes to the tomb with her oils to anoint the corpse because that was the Jewish custom. Um, And in a way, it's one of the great themes of St. John's Gospel, the whole Christian faith is this great cosmic battle between light and darkness. And and John lays that out in the prologue to his gospel, saying people preferred the darkness. Um, But Jesus has come to banish the darkness, and therefore all the important things happen in the heart of the darkness. So while it was still dark, very early in the morning, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, she finds the tomb empty. Um, and she's confused, she's bereft, she, she asks, the, you, know, she, you know, who's rolled the stone away? She's confused. Um, uh, she goes into the tomb, and there's, uh, uh, there's some angels there. Um, and the, she chats with the angels, she still doesn't really know what's happened, he is not here, she's told, it's all very confusing. She then rushes back um, to get Peter and John. Peter and John come to the tomb. Peter and John go into the tomb. Peter and John come out of the tomb. They're men, so they don't know what to do. They just... They go back home to open a beer or something. You know, they're, com- they're, they're nonplussed by it all. Um, Mary Magdalene is left lingering outside the tomb. Now, let's pause for the story again. I asked you the question, what were the first words the risen Christ said on the first Easter day? And it seems like Betsy is the only person who knew the answer. Um, so if nobody had known the answer, okay, if nobody had known the answer, and I said to you, okay then, so have a, have a complete guess. What do you think Jesus might have said on the first Easter day? I mean, if you'll forgive me such a such a blasphemous thought for a moment, if it had been me on the first Easter day, if I had just risen from the dead, I think I might have said, I've risen from the dead! (laughs) You know. You would forgive, wouldn't you? You would forgive Jesus a little bit of uncharacteristic triumphalism on such an occasion, I've risen from the dead. You, you know, if you turned over that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, you know, she found the tomb. We know she, we, you know the story, don't you? You just can't remember what it is that Jesus says. Um, Mary Magdalene meets Jesus. If Jesus had said to her, I've risen from the dead, you wouldn't be surprised, would you? So, oh, fair enough, he's risen from the dead. But then you might think, well, I don't know, hang on a minute. That's a bit uncharacteristic. So have you noticed that often in the Bible... Um, when Jesus or somebody else speaks, what they do is give you a bit of theology. So they, they give you some sort of creedal definition to explain the theological significance of what has happened. So Mary Magdalene goes, you know, she goes to the tomb, she gets Peter and John, Peter and John come to them, they go back home again. Mary Magdalene is left standing in the garden. She meets somebody um, whom she... Th- well, that's another interesting... Another little footnote to the sermon... Sorry, I will come back to this. Uh, We will get to hear what Betsy said in a minute, those of you who are still um, waiting to find out the answer. She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. Um, Which is interesting because, of course, he is the gardener. 
He is the gardener. He is the new Adam tending to a new creation. That is the great biblical vision. The great biblical vision is of a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. Um, one thing, though, I do say to, uh, to those people who perhaps get a bit dewy-eyed about the countryside, I do remind them that the Bible begins in a garden but ends in a city. And I rather like that as a thoroughly urban person. Um, you know, there will be kebab shops um, in heaven uh, because it's an urban vision. But that's another matter. Um, so Mary Magdalene's there. She sees this person whom she mistakes for the gardener and he speaks to her. He doesn't say... I've risen from the dead. He doesn't either give a definition, an explanation. He doesn't say, I've risen from the dead, I've cast down Satan underfoot, um, I've forgiven the sins of the world, I've opened the gate of glory. He doesn't say any of those things that we say in our creeds and our hymns. His first words are these. Woman, why are you weeping? And isn't that absolutely astonishing? His f the first words that the risen Jesus speaks on the first Easter day are words that reach out to us. They're his first words. Not, not about him. Not about what he's done. But about you and me. And he says to Mary... Why are you weeping? The theme of this evening really is that he's saying, what is binding you? What is hurting you? What are the sorrows in your heart? What is holding you back? They are his first words. And, and, and it's kind of tragic that we don't remember these words because they are some of the most beautiful words in the whole gospel, that the risen Jesus on the first Easter day comes to the first person he meets and the first thing he says is, why are you weeping? He reaches out to us. Um, we're going we're to um, come to the Lazarus bit in a minute, but... Um, Perhaps one of the most famous lines in the Bible is in the Lazarus story, because when Jesus got to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept himself. I was with some Kenyan bishops uh, last autumn, uh, and Kenya is a very formal society where they've got a... We Brits are thought of as people with a stiff upper lip. The Kenyans' upper lip is stiffer than the British upper lip. Uh, they, they take a great pride in not showing any emotion at all. Uh, and uh, I was chatting with these Kenyan bishops uh, and talking about how it's important, particularly for us blokes, um, it's harder for us, I think, sometimes to show our emotions and to talk about our feelings. Uh, and we need, we need to hear Jesus saying to us, why are you weeping? Or, or maybe saying to us, why are you not able to weep? Why can't you? Share and give voice to your sorrows. Why are you locking it all away inside you? And we were talking about this, and I just said, um, and they found this very difficult, these Kenyan bishops. And, and I said, well, G Jesus wept. And they, and they 
kind of looked at me with horror, as if, as if no, he didn't. And, and, I said, and I said, well, yes, Jesus wept. I said, he, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He wept. He wept when he came to Jerusalem. He, he, he wept on the night before he died. His tears were like great drops of blood as he struggled to be reconciled to the vocation God had put before him. And we too weep. We too weep. So that's the first thing. The first thing to hold on to this evening. I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, why are you weeping? What is it that's binding you? What is it that's hurting you? And it's easy, I suppose, in one way for me to stand here and say this, but I also know that as I say these words, all kinds of stuff might be rising up inside you. And just writing it down on a muslin cloth may not feel like a wonderful way of dealing with it, but let that be a small sign of the things that are hurting you and binding you, the things that are causing you to weep. And also, this evening, at the end of our service, there will be an opportunity to talk to somebody or at least have somebody pray with you, if you wish, for these things which are on your heart. And what was the second thing that Jesus said on the first Easter day? The lady here has already given us the answer. Sorry, I don't know your name. Olive. He said... Who, he's forgotten. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? So his, his first question, his first question is, why are you weeping? His second question, and do you notice, by the way, the things that Jesus says on the first Easter day are questions, which is, which is in itself interesting. Searching, probing questions. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Now, is there a more important question for every single human being on this planet to face than that question. Who are you looking for? I mean, who are you going to follow in life? There's all sorts of people you can follow, all sorts of philosophies you can follow, all sorts of things you can base your life upon, and many, many of us are very, very successful on basing our life on all kinds of stuff. We're really, really good at worshipping other gods. You know, the god of wealth, the god of power. All these gods we worship. You know, somebody, um, uh, you won't like this, but don't worry, I'll be out of here on Wednesday, so it's okay. You're not going to like this bit, okay? Because this is, on the whole, this is a pretty affluent community, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, not, you're, not, the, you're not the poor in America. It's a pretty affluent community. Therefore, let me tell you this straight. You are in spiritual danger. Because the, the trouble with wealth is you can start to think, maybe I'm self... I don't need... I don't, what do I need? I've got all that I need. You can start imagining that you're self-sufficient. So about a couple of years ago, a guy comes to me, and he says to me that could he come and see me to talk about spiritual direction? You know, he wanted to talk about his spiritual life. So I said, yeah, that would be fine. You know, so we kind of booked a, booked a time when it was mutually convenient for him to come to me and talk about his spiritual life. And I said, well, when you come, please be sure 
to bring with you your credit card statements and your bank statements and all your financial details. Please bring them with you. And he looked at me with horror. And he said, um, I think there may have been some misunderstanding. I, I want to come to talk to you about my spiritual life, not my financial affairs. And I said to him, there will be no clearer indication of your priorities in life than your credit card statement and your bank statement. You may not like it, but they will show very, very clearly what you really think matters in life and where your priorities are. He came. He did come. It's a very painful meeting. And, and hey, let me just remind you that every preacher, when he preaches, always preaches to himself. So, so I am also part of a wealthy, affluent, materialist society, and I struggle with this just as much as I guess many of you struggle. But that question, who are you looking for? Where do you set the compass of your life? What are your priorities? What really matters to you? What are you doing? What are you doing with the resources that you've been given? Now that's real spirituality. Spirituality is not, I'm going to cut myself off from the world and have nice cosy feelings about God. It's about saying, how will I live out my Christian life according to the values and the standards of the gospel as I see them in Jesus Christ? And that question, who are you looking for, is a hard question, but it's one that every one of us must face. And what was the third thing that Jesus said on the first Easter day? Here we can come back to you, Richard, because you, this, is where, this is where you come in. Was it, was it, wasn't it you who said? Mary. Yeah, Mary. That's the one. I reckon if, I, if we did a poll at the beginning and I said, who, who thinks the first thing he said was Mary? I think probably that would get the most, the most hands would go up. That's the, that, we forget why are you weeping. We forget who are you looking for. We remember that Jesus said Mary's name. And up to that point, of course, Mary doesn't know who Jesus is. She thinks he's the gardener. So, so now let's pause again and think, what is it that Mary is seeing here? There she is in the garden on the first Easter day. There's this person that she thinks is the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. I think I'll probably try and say a bit more about this tomorrow night, but let's just have a little bit about it now. Uh, it, it, what's happening is what biblical commentators and theologians call continuity and discontinuity. Let me briefly explain what that means. Continuity discontinuity. Continuity, the person that Mary Magdalene beholds in the garden is the same person who died upon the cross. It's the same Jesus. But what is not happening is it is not the resuscitation of a corpse. It's not the resuscitation of a corpse. That's what happened with Lazarus. Now we get into tonight's story. Have you ever thought of tonight's story in this way? It's another one of my naughty thoughts. Have you ever thought of it this way? 
Poor old Lazarus. Poor old Lazarus. Because Lazarus has to go through the whole dying thing twice. (laughs) I mean, that's really bad luck, isn't it? (laughs) Now, all of us, all of us, have to go through the dying thing once. Okay, I can see some of you looking a bit puzzled. Um, We all have, let me say it again, we all have to go through the dying thing once. If you don't believe me, check the small print on your contract when you get home. We all go through the dying thing once. I know that we live in a culture that likes to pretend this isn't going to happen, that doesn't like to talk about it. Um, that we live in a culture where some people would like you to think that if you get the right amount of exercise, a high-fibre diet, the requisite plastic surgery, a following wind, then you can live forever. Well, no, you're not going to. We all go through the dying thing once. Poor old Lazarus, he goes through the dying thing twice. When Jesus raises Lazarus, he is raising Lazarus to resume the life that he previously had. This is not what is happening with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, there is continuity, it's the same person, but Jesus is raised to a new and transformed life. So what Mary Magdalene is seeing is what you might call the first piece, the foundation stone of the new creation, that great biblical vision, the new heaven and the new earth, the risen Christ is the first piece. And when Mary Magdalene sees the risen Christ, it is like a piece of her future, a piece of our future. The destiny that we have in Christ rushes into the present. It it rushes into the present in the risen Christ. Um, I, I love those words, Again in St. John's Gospel, on the night before he died, uh, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, something like that, I think, Jesus says to his friends, I'm going now. I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And after I have gone, I will return to take you with me, so that where I am, you may be too. Oh, brothers and sisters, the whole Christian hope is summed up in those verses. I am going now, says Jesus, and he's speaking about his death. I am going now. We'll we'll speak more about the death of Jesus tomorrow and what it means. But I'm going now. And I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And the image, therefore, is of a banquet. Of a great banquet with, with places prepared. And after I've gone, I will return. He's speaking about the resurrection. I will return for a purpose, to take you with me so that where I am, you may be too. That is the Christian hope. And that is what Mary Magdalene sees on the first Easter morning, though initially she still does not recognize him. And here's another profound mystery. She only recognizes Jesus when Jesus recognizes her. So when Jesus speaks her name, 
She knows who he is. And I guess maybe that will be my prayer for you. I, I don't know where all of you are with God. You know, I don't know whether you're somebody who's absolutely full of faith and on fire for the Christian gospel or whether you're somebody who sits in church Sunday by Sunday thinking, frankly, I don't know what I believe. Or, or whether your faith feels like it's on automatic pilot and it's a long while since it felt real. Or, or inside you feel your faith is shriveled up. I suppose what I want you to hear is Jesus speaking to you, not me, saying, why are you weeping? What's binding you? What's holding you back? Jesus challenging you. Who are you looking for? You know, where are you going to set your priorities for life? And, most of all, Jesus speaking your name. Speaking your name so that you know that he knows you what I was saying last night, that Jesus has known you from the very first moment of your being and he knows you now and he calls you by name. And when we hear Jesus calling us by name, then we know that we are known and then we know God. And Mary's eyes are opened and she sees that it is Jesus and she grabs hold of him and therefore the fourth, I think we'll finish with this one, the fourth, we could go on, there's a lot more things he said on the first Easter day, but I think I'm running out of time. The fourth thing that Jesus says to Mary is a hard thing. He says to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. And I think what that means is do not think you can contain me. Do not think you can control me. Do not think you can define me. Do not think you can constrain me. Uh, there is a wonderful uh, Welsh poet who was a priest, R.S. Thomas, who in one of his poems called Pilgrimages said this. He is such a fast God, always leaving as we arrive. And I think that's what Mary Magdalene said. Just, just as you think you've got it all worked out, that's when the Holy Spirit dances on ahead because there's always more. So there's a number of things for us to hold in our hearts and prayers this evening. Jesus says, why are you weeping? He says, who are you looking for? He speaks to you by name, but at the same time, he will also say to you, but do not cling to me. Do not think that you can work me out. There will always be be more. So let me finish with, um, well, maybe two more little stories. Um, one about weeping, because Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he says to us, why are you weeping? So one story about weeping, and then another story about the things that are most real in this life, most real are the things that we cannot see. The things that we cannot see. Both stories, again, are about children. Uh, first of all, a little girl coming home late from school one day. She's coming home late from school, and her parents are beside themselves with worry. Uh, she should have been home 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago. She still hasn't come home. Uh, 
The mother is beginning to think something terrible has happened to the little girl. 25 minutes go by. Half an hour goes by. The mother is on the verge of phoning the police, imagining something awful has happened when the little girl waltzes in through the back door. The mother, in her relief, sweeps the little girl up in her arms, but as is the way with us parents, relief quickly turns to anger. And the mother says to the little girl, where have you been? You know, didn't you know how worried I would be? And the little girl says, well, I was coming home from school uh, and I passed a lady carrying this most enormous, beautiful vase. And, and as I passed her, she tripped and the vase fell from her hands and broke into a thousand pieces. Oh, says the mother, is that why you're late? Did you stop? and help her pick up the pieces. No, says the little girl. I stopped to help her cry. Now, again, there's so much more we could say about the Christian faith. But that's another good place to start. That that what has God done in Jesus Christ? Well, he's seen the sorrow of our hearts. He's seen our troubles and he's come to us in Jesus Christ. And the second and final little story, this is a story that happened to me. Uh, Some years ago, uh, there was a school, a church school, which I regularly went into to take assemblies to speak to the children. And after I'd done my bit with the children, I would have coffee with the staff in the staff room. And on this particular morning, the teacher came into the staff room really excited about what had happened in her class that morning. And in her class that morning, I never really understood the educational purpose of this, but she had been bringing the children to the front of the class, blindfolding them, and then getting them to identify different objects, as it were, in the dark. Uh, And you know, perhaps when you play those kind of games with children where they're blindfolded, when you put the blindfold on, to check that it's on properly, you usually say to the child, can you see? Well, this little girl, these were six and seven-year-olds. Little girl comes to the front of the class, the teacher puts on the blindfold, says to the little girl, can you see? The little girl says yes. So the teacher kind of, you know, adjusts the blindfold, makes absolutely sure it's on properly, and says again to the little girl, can you see? Again, the little girl says yes. So the teacher thinks, there's, you know, there's something up here. There's no way the little girl can see. So she comes at the situation from another angle. And she says to the little girl, what can you see? And the little girl replies, trees and rivers and flowers and mountains. And when I heard this story, I thought it was so incredibly beautiful because there was that little girl standing there in the dark. And what could she see? Well, she could see everything. And then I thought, what will we adults teach that little girl? Well, we will teach her that she is wrong. 
that it is just her imagination. And I think I want to finish by saying to you that whereas it is true that we adults invest a lot of time in trying to turn children into adults, the Holy Spirit of God is trying to do the precise opposite. The Holy Spirit of God is trying to turn adults into children. Because I think it was Jesus himself who said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, and of course I quite realize that many of us don't want to enter the kingdom of God. I, for instance, want to enter the kingdom of Stephen. I want my kingdom, my way. My credit card statement will reveal it clearly. I want my priorities. But if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must become as a child. You must receive it as a child, as the glorious, unmerited, free gift it is. Brothers and sisters, hear the Lord speak to you this evening. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Amen.